Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm very honoured to be here at uh, the University of Bologna in Ravenna. Um, and uh, I think it's fantastic that uh, uh, University of Bologna is expanding its empire beyond, uh, beyond, <laughs> beyond, beyond Bologna, showing that there's some, some great... Uh, so thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about physical activity in increasingly smart urban environments. But <clears throat> like for me, I can't talk without talking about obesity. So <clears throat> I'll also talk about its relationships to obesity because this is how I, I got into uh, um, thinking about uh, physical activity. I was asked to uh, uh, speak to this uh, at a, a meeting in Switzerland last year and uh, a paper um, has come out in uh, in obesity in obesity reviews and uh, <clears throat> uh, the kinds of uh, discussion that uh, I've started is um, still speculative but um, something that should forge interdisciplinarity in thinking about how to build intelligent uh, cities that are also promoting good health. So on this slide, there's there's, there's two pictures. Um, one is uh, by Canaletto. Um, in uh, in uh, um, uh, Venezia, and the other one are performers at your Dante Alighieri uh, theatre here. Just to say that urbanism is a stage, and each campo, each place is a place for display. And I want to examine how these urban forms are actually important for for, for human well-being um, as we go on. So to start off with. <coughs> Uh, my uh, unit for biocultural variation and obesity at the, the University of Oxford is an um, interdisciplinary network. We actually um, <coughs> don't employ many people, but we create the environment for interdisciplinary collaboration. So at the moment, we're working with <coughs> um, Oxford Biobank, with, uh, with biologists, um, um, an epigeneticist, historians, um, economists, um, as well as uh, the more usual, so, more usual social scientists and, and public health people. So there are many, many ways in which we can think about these problems of health in a different and uh, less institutionalized way. So, you know, this shows some of our activity. We had a guy with the um, with, with pig fat down here in uh, Papua New Guinea. Fat is good. <coughs> Uh, we have uh, Michael Marmot up there who came for one of our meetings, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, Robert Fogel, who, who also came to one of our meetings, Torkil Sorensen, a leading uh, a Danish uh, obesity epidemiologist, um, Lab and Dance Theatre, and even Claudio Franceschi down here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we travel around. So the thinking about obesity uh, that I'm going to develop is from a book uh, that I had published last year, 2017, called Models of Obesity, <coughs> From Ecology to Complexity in Science and Policy. And it's mostly about how we think about a problem. And obesity is the vehicle for thinking about this problem. So as we go into this talk, you'll realize that uh, um, I've gone back to Kantian rationality, Weberian rationalities, to thinking, of, thinking about a, a, an issue that is often thought of as being a medical and public health problem. In terms of physical activity, um, I'm going to draw on a paper that has been published in Obesity Reviews just, uh, uh, just in uh, November. 
and uh, it's uh, it's about um, how public health thinks about uh, physical activity. Uh, but I'm going to develop the argument about smartness and the use of smart devices, smart cities, and so on in this discourse, drawing on the construct of aesthetic capital. Um, as uh, and, and I'll show you how as we go along. So, <coughs> first of all, why urban? Why the why the urban environment? Well, the world is increasingly urban. You know, you have Euro America that. Uh, uh, saps a lot of the electricity in the world, but increasingly India and China are becoming increasingly urban. More than half of the world's population um, is, is urban. Um, obesity and urbanism is linked in high-income countries, and increasingly so in low-income countries, such that, you know, in South Africa, down here, I've had a student who's worked in a South African township to look at the dual burden of obesity and undernutrition in a poor South African township, not just in the rich places. So it's, a, it's an issue that is, is, is very much a, a global issue. <laughs> the physical activity and urbanism is linked most strongly in the high-income countries. And here is another place where we've had to rethink what a high-income country is. Because the World Bank categorizes countries according to high-income upper middle income, lower middle income, and then lower income countries. And uh, their classification of high income countries now includes uh, most of the countries of, of Latin America. That uh, it includes the countries of the uh, Arabian Middle East. That these countries sit outside of the cultural norms of Euro-America, of Europe and the United States. They have different cultural norms and we had to rethink uh, what, it is, what it is about high-income countries that pulls them together. Um, it's income, but previously we also pulled together cultural factors of saying these characterize high-income countries. This is not true anymore. <laughs> Global levels of physical activity are a matter of wealth, however. Um, these, uh, in this chart, we've got um, men and women, both sexes as well, and the proportion of adults who are inactive in uh, countries classified as being high, upper middle, lower middle, and low income. And we can see it's the upper middle income countries and high income countries where people are, are least physically active. Um, it's no surprise, here we are sitting in this room. Everybody's sitting, you're listening, I'm talking, and this really doesn't count as physical activity. Some mental activity, I hope, is going on, but, uh, but, but very, little, uh, very little physical activity. The history of physical activity is also interesting. This is um, a decline in physical activity here in the United States, where we have the rise of light physical activity and the decline of even moderate physical activity since 1960 to 2010. People are using their bodies less and less, except um, with the reemergence of of uh, physical activity as aesthetic capital has has risen as a as a as an important entity, especially among among younger people, it's now cool to work out. For example, the public health implications of physical activity, physical inactivity, are summarised here from a Harvard alumni study that shows various physical activity measures relative to death. Um, this is again from a paper that's been recently published and, and, and there's been some reanalysis there that shows that for the more miles you walk, the relative risk of death declines by about 
um, if you walk more than um, you know, 15 kilometers per week. Um, if you climb more than a thousand stairs per week, then your uh, uh, risk of death declines by 10%. Um, if you engage in light sports at least three times a week, then your risk of death declines by, by 30%. If you play very vigorous sports, it declines by 25%, uh, and so on. So physical activity has got very real implications for, uh, uh, for, for, for mortality and for morbidity. Why is physical activity important in the late modern world, according to, to the, the framework of, uh, of Andrew Giddens? We can think of four main reasons. Uh, public health, of course, we want to reduce obesity. I think physical activity can help for that. Reduce death, reduce disease. Um, we can think of it from an evolutionary perspective that um, physical activity is important in, um, in uh, mate choice, reproduction, um, the work that one does, um, the kind of presentation of your body that you have, and so on. It's important in economic senses, especially when um, work is less uh, uh, involving computers, but more involving the, uh, the, the, the physical movement of the body. So physical activity also helps with mental activity. In Oxford, I have a standing desk. I'm never standing. I'm always moving around. Sometimes I'm standing on one leg, sometimes on another leg. And sometimes, I, you know, you're constantly dancing around the, the computer as opposed to sitting down in the computer like this. And so physical activity is also good for mental health. You know, I have students who say, look, everything is confused and difficult and I can't work everything out. And I say, just go for a walk or go for a run. Just go and do something. Get away. Go into a nice, beautiful park. Do something and then, and then come back. Because your mind will still be working on this while you're distracted and, and, and problems will sort themselves out if you allow this to happen. And then the other one is, is the uh, biocultural explanation um, that uh, places physical activity within the category of social distinction and capital formation. Um, for example, movie stars are always beautiful or handsome, or they also have uh, um, very little body fatness on them, and uh, they reflect the models for everybody else to try to, to match. But of course, it's impossible, because their job is to look beautiful. And so um, they work out and, and so on to stay thin and stay fit and so on. So the social distinction aspect of, uh, of uh, physical activity I will, I will come on to later. In relation to obesity, a number of um, issues that relate to, uh, relate to obesity. First of all, energy balance. We know that if you eat too much and don't get enough physical activity, you'll put on weight. Everybody knows that. But still, obesity rates are increasing everywhere. Of course, it's not as simple as that. Energy balance is actually much more complex than that. Uh, that physical activity, exercise, and movement fit just into this one little box where you have um, active energy expenditure, resting energy expenditure, this is, this is sleeping, dietary-induced thermogenesis, this is the energy you expend just by digesting your food, um, and then you have a whole range of factors that contribute to, to, to energy expenditure, and a whole range of factors that also reflect on energy intake. 
energy intake has another set of complexity which is around focused around appetite which is increasingly increasingly complex because um, appetite involves the gut, involves the brain, involves um, signaling from, from uh, adipose tissue and so on. I'm not going to focus on that today, but just thinking about energy expenditure in the context of, uh, in the context of uh, 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 energy balance. And that uh, it's actually part of a, a regulating system um, that compensates for itself. So, you know, if you work very physically hard or go for a run or something, you'll develop an appetite, you're more likely to eat. And so there's a lot of multiple compensations going on uh, within, within all of this. And at the base, there's genetic factors which, which determine variability in, in physical activity and also environmental <coughs> factors that regulate the genetics and the hormon horm hormonal expression that uh, uh, regulates both appetite and energy expenditure. So you see, even just sitting here in this room is complex. You know, you think you're just sitting down. Actually, you're doing something very complex. You can, you can, you can be happy with that. Um, most of this energy expenditure from that, uh, from that uh, box here uh, is under involuntary control. That is, you can't do much about your basal metabolic rate, the energy that you, sleep, you, you expend when you go to sleep, how much energy you expend by digesting food, um, how much energy you expend by just twitching around, you know, moving around because you can't sit in one place. Everybody, you know, this is called uh, NEAT, non, you know, uh, Oh, I can't remember the term, but it's, it's a term that means that you don't have control over what you're doing. You're kind of fidgeting and so on and moving around, like me now, you know, uh, because I need my energy expenditure. The part that is, uh, you have some control over is exercise, sport, occupation, and leisure. This is the part that makes the difference in terms of obesity rates. It's the small part of energy expenditure that there is control over, either individually you know, if I were giving this talk in Copenhagen, at some stage, somebody would get up and stand by the side of the room, then somebody else, then somebody else, and people would start standing rather than sitting because they get fed up of sitting down. And this is normal. Um, also, in Oxford, when we have, have meetings, we also, people will stand up and just stand at the side of the room. This isn't seen as being insulting. It's just meaning, you know, they want to pay attention and they're falling asleep by, by sitting down. So how you structure life is very important in terms of physical activity. If you're standing up, you, you know, there's no reason why you should be sitting down. You could all have you know, standing desks, and you could all be standing here equally well. But we have created a structure that is already reducing physical activity. So physical activity and public health, what are the kinds of models you can have? Most models for physical activity are ecological, uh, with a broad view of health and behavior um, uh, causation. So how health and behavior is structured in relation to the social and physical environment, uh, which uh, are both under individual control. You can control how you manage your household, for example, but you have less control over the city you live in, the town you live in, 
whether there's a bus system, whether you can use a bicycle, and this is urban planning, systems, transportation, parks, all of these contribute to your ability to be able to, to, to go out. So for example, many years ago, I, many, many years ago, I worked in Philadelphia. There's a very, very beautiful park at the back of the uh, um, art museum in Philadelphia. And the art museum in Philadelphia is a fantastic museum. And the park is a fantastic park, which was you know, created you know, a hun over 100 years ago. But nobody goes there. Nobody uses this park because you might get robbed, because people are doing drugs in this park. And so what was a public good in the 19th century, people to be able to use the park in a healthy way, has been subverted by um, um, social practices. Conversely, you could probably go to any major city in Italy in the evening, and it's safe to walk because everybody's walking. So the more people that are using a, a social space, um, the safer it becomes, and then it becomes more natural to be walking. So, and you don't even have to think about it. This is just what you do. This, uh, other factors that contribute to thinking about physical activity and public health include genetic factors um, that contribute to whether one wants to be physically active or not, um, evolutionary factors um, that also predispose to physical activity, and obesity that also predisposes to, to physical inactivity. Obesity has risen across the world since the mid-1980s, early 1990s. This chart shows um, males are the um, solid lines, females are the dotted lines, um, and this is um, high social index countries, and this is um, middle social index countries, and then you have the, the, the poorer, lower social index countries here. And one thing that is fairly obvious uh, from this chart is that women have a greater predisposition to develop obesity than men, almost everywhere. Women are very ecologically sensitive, much more so than men, in this sense, and they're very uh, 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 prone to developing developing obesity. This is largely seen to be in relation to to, to reproduction, and that body fatness in women is always higher than than, than men anyway. Some very good writing about this by Jonathan Wells um, in, uh, uh, in 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 London, who talks about you know re reproduction and uh, and body fatness. But everywhere it's been increasing, even among you know the poorest countries, where it's increased quite dramatically in the last 20 years um, among, among women, among the, the poorest countries. The rise of obesity really couldn't happen um, without the uh, rise of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of cheaper food, at least to the 2000s. So this is Venice, of course, as a, an idea of how obesity has risen like a tidal wave. But the difference between Obesity and Venice, this tide does not go out for obesity yet, but we do know it goes out for, yeah. I've just come from Venezia. I find it very strange that uh, when you go to a bar, you have to put your, your boots on to go and stand in a bar for your, for your aperitivo. Um, and this is normal behavior in Venezia. This is weird, really weird for me um, when, when, when it's like this. Um, okay. The... Um, rise in, in obesity, the first thing is it could not happen without a decline in food prices. So food up until around 2007 has gotten cheaper and cheaper globally. 
since 2007, you know, there was uh, the recession, which then led to food price instability, and since then, food prices have been jumping around all over the place. <coughs> so what's happened? Basically, food production per capita has increased. This is calories. This is uh, energy. It's always focused on energy when, when, when they talk about this kind of food security. Uh, total food production has increased more than two and a half fold since 1961. Okay, that's total food production. Because of course, population is increasing, but on on average, um, people are getting 30 percent more calories across the world than they did 50 years ago. On average, now of course, economic inequality has risen, obesity has risen. So while the numbers of people who are undernourished had been declining, it's actually started to go up again um, in, in, in more recent years. The, the coexistence of malnutrition and obesity is sometimes found not just within the same country, not just within the same community, but sometimes within the same house. And this is, this is my former student, Michelle Pentecost, was, was studying this because she was working in a, a township in South Africa where, uh, so Porsche Township, you know, like Soweto, not Soweto, it was, it was a place called Kailicha, where, where, you know, male children, for example, were more likely to be, to be obese, women were more likely to be very fat, men were more likely to be very fit, females were like, female children more likely to be thin. You found, you know, extremes happening everywhere. That, you know, on the one hand, you had a problem of, of, of overweight, and then, the, you know, I imagine at some stage there will be the problem of anorexia nervosa associated here as well, you know, because females are trying to be thin and not like their mothers. Adolescent females are trying to be thin and not like their mothers. Uh, males are trying to, uh, are, are trying to be uh, trying to be muscular. Children, uh, the male children, are being privileged with food, so they become they become fatter, and so it becomes a very mixed up very mixed up picture. Her focus was on the first thousand days uh, program and how this could be a good intervention for reducing the dual burden because it would take away the emphasis from spoiling young children, for example, and trying to get good nutrition from the very early age to try and regularize, make, make, uh, make the nutrition regular in these contexts. Because in this, because you have disturbed situation where people are not eating together uh, people are, you know, he, the man is here, the woman is here, she's looking after the children, the adolescents, who knows where they are. Then they come back again, everybody's in different places. It's, a, it's not just that it's the nutrition that's disturbed, it's a social structure that is, uh, that is, that is, that is disturbed. So yes, absolutely. Uh, so dual burden of undernutrition and obesity, you find it in places like South Africa, uh, you find it in India, um, you find it in China. Those are the three places where it's very clearly shown. There's a belief in public health circles that this, under, this dual burden should eventually lead to a shift to obesity as opposed to undernutrition and obesity. But uh, at the moment, it's a, it's a more complex picture than anybody had conceived. And in India, it's uh, leading some, to some uh, major public health uh, concerns because they're having to invest in type 2 diabetes as well as undernutrition. And, uh, and, and so health budgets are being pushed in, in, in some very, into some very difficult uh, uh, places at the moment. So, 
Um, okay, so obesity could not happen without increased, increased food availability. That's the, the f first thing, that you could have a genetic predisposition. But if there is not the cheap food, the calories that are cheap and dense and tasty, very nice to eat, um, and uh, uh, a food structure that has been disrupted as opposed to a meal structure that is quite regulated, then, then uh, obesity can. The other thing that um, contributes to, to obesity is um, the late modern urban form, if I can call it that. Okay, this is Los Angeles. And uh, I'm, I'm sure people have been to similar kinds of places where everybody's sitting in a car traveling very slowly and you're not moving very quickly at all. So this urban modern form involves a separation of sites of human activity. So for example, you live in one place, your children go to school in another place, you work in another place, you do, you buy your food in another place, and then you have some recreational activities in another place. I worked in Perth in Western Australia, which um, is this kind of place on a much smaller scale. But even with the best attempts to keep everything as healthy as possible, we spent so much time in the motor car, going from taking our kids to school from home, going to the workplace, um, doing, doing our shopping, coming home, picking up the children, taking the children to tennis, the children are hungry. What do you feed them? McDonald's. You know, because there it is. It's somewhere on this freeway. You can stop and, and fill your stomach with McDonald's. And the children eat this McDonald's. They go and play. You think you've fed them for the evening. They say, no, we're hungry. And they are hungry because McDonald's isn't a very effective way of, of, of satisfying the appetite. And so they end up having two meals. And this was my family we were doing this and we knew this is what we were doing. This, you know, urban modernity, this mobility and separation of sites is a major issue that is, um, re has, has contributed to the problem of reduced physical activity and, uh, and, and, to, and to obesity. Um, there was an exhibition in London of uh, uh, Renzo Piano's uh, uh, architecture, beautiful exhibition, at the, at the Royal Academy, and they had some film of him, you know, just talking about the challenges for the future. And he said, the challenges for the future are to take these suburban places and make them truly urban. Because only in this urban form do you have the concentration of people and the resources that you can bring these things together, that no longer should you be getting in the motor car to go to the supermarket or taking your children to a school from across a long distance, that you can bring things together. So this is sort of one of the, one of, one of the, uh, one of the challenges for the future. So how is obesity related to, to urbanism since the, since the 1980s? The argument that I've made in, in my book has been that obesity can be seen as an inadvertent outcome of practices of late modernity and of expert systems. So late modernity is separating people into suburbia and into different locations that all the time you're having to get in your motor car or catch the bus to, to, to get from one place to another. Localism has, uh, has declined. And expert systems are the things that are regulating our lives without us looking. There is one person on the phone in front of me at least, there are two people on their computers, and I assume you're both connected to the web in some way, yes? 
I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying you're both using the internet, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, you're linked into an expert system directly here in this room while I'm giving this presentation. This expert system is giving you information, connectivity, you may be talking to colleagues or friends, you may be organizing the next meeting, which is fine, this is how people work. And, and this, is, this is dependent on a system of, um, of, of computing, of network computing, that links up every single individual on the planet. This is a good thing. I'm going to argue this is a good thing because it can make our lives better but first of all we should be aware <coughs> of how these expert systems are penetrating our lives I've just mentioned the very obvious ones you know who caught a train this morning did anybody catch a train okay okay so you have both used expert systems to come here who came in a motor car yeah one person you've used an expert system to to to, to come here I'll explain what I mean very shortly. An expert system is using computers to make decisions in real-life situations. So when you look at the weather forecast, for example, this is using artificial intelligence and expert systems, taking in measurements from all over the world and using measurements that have been collected for maybe 50 years from different places to predict what will happen tomorrow on the basis of real-time measurements in different places using network computing to come back to this one place, using computing um, expert functionality to predict what will, be, what will happen on the basis of what has happened in previous years. Mostly it gets it right. Mostly because it depends on normative ways of thinking. It's, it's assuming that things will follow norms. Of course, sometimes norms are not followed and then there's a, a thunderstorm or a hurricane or something which, which wasn't predicted and this, this, this can change things. Computers are making decisions in real-life situations. You need knowledge, okay, an expert, create a knowledge base, and then you build an inference engine that will then <coughs> put in queries, say, what will the weather be tomorrow? This user interface from this inference en engine will give the advice. The weather will be beautiful. It will be 17 degrees in Bologna tomorrow, and I believe it. I checked this morning. Um, that's my use of an expert system and it tells me this is what's going to happen but mostly we don't think about this we just accept that these predictions mostly work but they actually require global computing to be able to to be able to function now how do expert systems penetrate our lives okay just in relation to food and obesity they're involved in agriculture because farmers are using weather forecasting very very precisely to be able to know exactly what they're doing in different areas. I have a brother-in-law who is a farmer in Australia, and you know he is locked into the weather forecast. He's locked into predictions of rainfall. He's locked into predictions of how much there will be, how much evaporative loss there will be from the ground. So he knows how much water to put down onto his ground. This is saving him money, in in very in very real ways. It's involved in retail. When was the last time you went to a shop? And some, or a supermarket, a bigger shop, uh, and something you wanted was not there. Now, because in the supermarkets uh, you have uh, a barcode, this, this tells them the price, but it also takes away the, uh, they know that uh, they've sold one of these bottles, um, and they know how much has been sold in every supermarket everywhere. And the next day they know how much to put back. 
And so everything is maintained because this information goes back to a central place. This central place then knows how much to distribute to different places. And the places that they put the distribution centers are also determined mathematically to be the most efficient, most parsimonious way of delivering to as many places as possible. So the central delivery places that will ensure, and they're usually in places you would never think of, but they've been determined mathematically because they can be the best road system to get things to, 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 to the best way, so they save on fuel as well. Okay, in retail, in transportation, you caught a bus, you caught a train, this uses expert systems. Epidemiology uses expert systems. Uh, increasingly so, as, as big data is coming into epidemiology, urban planning uses, uses expert systems. You know, whenever you've had a, a parking ticket, you know, you've driven down the wrong street and the camera catches you, this is using an expert system. Urban planning, distribution planning, I've mentioned already, public transport, medical management, traffic management, medical diagnosis, food safety. I should add one more here. You know, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the Far East, they're using expert systems to determine fashion color trends. So when you know what the color is fashionable for this year, in some places they're using expert system computing to determine what should be the next fashion. How little control you have. You th with characterization of expert systems has, has entered uh, uh, obesity discourse. Primarily in the, in the UK, this was a, a British government think tank, Foresight Obesity, so I was part of this uh, think tank. I was the, um, one of the major social scientists in this, uh, in this process. And uh, they were characterized obesity through having a, over a hundred different factors that were related to, to, to obesity. And these were different systems. All of them, apart from energy balance, were conceived as being complex. So genetics is a complex system. Appetite is a complex system. Society is complex. The food system is complex, transportation is complex, and politics is complex. All of these things are separate complex systems, work together. So with obesity, if you try to change something that influences appetite, and you don't change other things, you get pushback. So any single policy that tries to change you know, obesity by, by, you know, uh, uh, by, by one, uh, one intervention, means that there'll be pushback somewhere else because it's not just operating on its own. It's not a linear system, it's a, it's, a, it's a complex system. Of these systems, food, transportation, political systems, are all expert systems. So within this categorization, we already have the emergence of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, expert systems. What are the urban effects? I have to say this because it makes me very unhappy at the moment. Um, because I'm at Oxford, a very global and cosmopolitan university that is full of Europeans. Working happily, we make a very happy research family in general. And Brexit is making people very unhappy. Um, the University of Oxford is supporting, as far as it can, its European researchers. Because, you know, we believe in it very, very strongly. Obesity and Brexit are linked. Very strongly, actually, very strongly. When you break down the regions that, uh, that voted to, to leave the European Union, these are also the regions that have, have the highest, uh, highest, levels of, highest levels of obesity. But there is a very interesting exception to this. Okay, one of the reasons is that it's usually the poorer people who have less idea of uh, how their lives are controlled 
um, who are uh, um, provincial and not cosmopolitan that have uh, vo voted, voted, for, uh, voted for Brexit. Um, the difference is just down here, this corridor down here, London, Oxford, Cambridge, and the southeast. This is where the British economy is. That is where the economy is. And this is how they voted to stay in the European Union. Okay? So this is the most cosmopolitan part of the country where the power of the economy is strongest and where the fewest voted for Brexit. But <coughs> the interesting exception is that there are some places um, like Manchester, like Newcastle, um, like Birmingham, um, as well as Oxford and Cambridge, um, where obesity rates are lower um, and places that uh, don't fit into the, into the general pattern. This prompted us to think about the effects that are going on with big cities and complexities of cities. So the first kind of larger analysis, this is still work under, under, under preparation, is to look at um, obesity rates in relation to city size. This is in the United Kingdom. We see that in the very largest cities, the obesity rates, as determined from inpatient admissions with primary or second diagnosis of obesity, uh, is, is lowest in London, and then in, in cities between half a million and one million, and then highest in the cities that are between 200,000 and 300,000 people. So this is, this is intriguing. Um, when we look at the uh, United States, um, there's something that's been well known about for a long time, <clears throat> which is about rural and uh, uh, urban obesity. That the, in rural places, obesity rates are higher than in urban places, and often it's attributed to the fact that in, you know, in rural places people are less well-educated and, uh, and if they're less well-educated they're more likely to become obese because they don't know how, how best to control their diet and, 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 uh, and maintain healthy life. But when we do the same thing in the United States, and the United States in, in recent decades has become increasingly complex in its metropolitan formation, there are now you know, a number of middle-sized cities that have become metro areas. So Chicago we know, but Dallas has become, Dallas-Fort Worth has become a, a major metropolitan center of, of over five million people. The major Washington area also, um, the Miami area also has become a major metropolitan area. So this kind of suburbanization has, 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 has risen very, very dramatically, but also the linking up of cities into major metropolitan areas. But again, the effect is less strong than it is in, uh, uh, in the United Kingdom, but there's still some evidence of a, of a small trend in relation to body mass index, that the very largest uh, urban conurbations have... <coughs> Uh, the lowest levels of obesity on average than the, than, the, than the smallest ones. This is counterintuitive in relation to classical ways of thinking about urbanism, that you know, urbanism becomes suburbia and suburbia people have to use their motor cars and they should become more obese. We're seeing an effect in the opposite direction. How can we try to explain this? Well, this is the Foresight Obesity Systems map and there are over a hundred factors that are in, involved in obesity several kinds of complexity operating together and that if you try to change any one thing then you change other things as well. Those are the different domains in the obesity system as I talked about them previously. So one explanation is the complexity of cities. 
The second possible explanation is in relation to demographic and network effects that you find in cities, that people actually live closer together and meet a broader cross-section of people than you might see if you were in, in, in smaller centers. So actually the cosmopolitanism of cities is something that contributes to the control of obesity, for example. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you live in London, you're more likely to see people running and cycling, and you're more likely to be wanting to run and cycle yourself, especially as the city gets bigger and public transport gets more difficult. And so, you know, so many people have moved to using active transport in London uh, because, uh, because the complexity of the city is such that you can do that. It's not too big um, in, terms of, in terms of geography, um, but the public transport system becomes is problematic. Um, <clears throat> relating this to um, complexity, urban complexity effects um, that have been, have been, uh, have been examined by uh, uh, colleagues in, uh, at Harvard and, uh, and mostly, in, uh, uh, yeah, mostly in Harvard but also um, in uh, Santa Fe, the urban phenomena tend to scale once you start to move beyond, uh, beyond a certain size. So for example, uh, what this chart shows is that the prevalence of urban phenomena changes systematically with population size. We're into a new area because urban places are getting bigger and bigger because we're becoming more urban. It's not just a duplication of what has happened before. The new urban places are new forms of complexity. And what they say is that they propose a theory that unifies <coughs> models of economic complexity, cultural evolution, um, in relation to, to, to urban scaling. So what they find is that phenomena that require more factors become less prevalent and scale super linearly. That means that if there's more than 100 factors involved in obesity, then it's less likely to be prevalent in, in, in a hyper-urban place. Uh, because there are, <coughs> because there are uh, more factors that need to be in place for that to be able to be, uh, to be, able to be uh, displayed. So as an example, um, they find that smaller cities, there are more people employed in industry. As cities get bigger, you have more people who are involved in innovation. As cities get yet bigger, then you have more creative people at the top of that innovation tree. Um, you have education levels people, the education levels are higher in the bigger cities on average because it attracts people of higher education levels. It's sucking up all the people from, the, from, uh, from uh, more rural places to, to them, which we, which we know happens. And so more education, even crime becomes much more skilled. Um, that the, the, the criminality in big cities is uh, associated with, uh, um, with um, more intelligent crime, as a, especially, especially cyber-related crime, and less in relation to people being, being robbed on the streets, for example. So this argument about uh, uh, increasing, uh, increasing size is something that um, the urban effect might be complexity scaling with population size. So the more factors that are involved, the more things that can be controlled, and also in relation to the demography of the population that is living in these hyper-urban centers. So Renzo Piano's argument about increasing the 
urbanism of places that are suburban as cities get bigger means that you're likely to have more of these effects operating within cities. So cities could generally be much healthier um, if we're uh, intelligent and we think about these things. So it relates to um, obesogenic environments, the context in which um, obesity emerges. Now, the urban environment is often put down as the major obesogenic environments. And the physical activity factor is the decline as people use their cars, as work becomes sedentary, as leisure becomes sedentary, you sit in front of your screen, and as you use computers and, and digital devices all the time and everywhere. So as an example, you know, food, at least in the United States, has gotten bigger and bigger. And the motor car had been promoted you know, as a dream of freedom but the reality is a, a, a prison on the freeway somewhere. And we live these, live these contradictions all the time. We buy the dream and then we live in the prison. And so, but, the, but the prison is too comfortable uh, to get rid of immediately because you can listen to your music and you can talk to your friends and the seats are very comfortable. Um, and, and so they know in the United States people are happy to commute in their motor car up to two hours in each direction because the motor cars have gotten more and more comfortable across time. Also, the rise of suburbia, that uh, you know, the homogeneity, homogeneity of the, in this case, the American dream, that you can have a perfect house with a beautiful lawn and everything is perfect. Of course, we know it's not perfect, uh, but you can get very easily lost in suburbia. But in these places, you can't really do very much without a motor car. Even if you go for a walk, in this kind of place, everything is so homogeneous that it's not interesting. You know, you don't have the aesthetics of going for a walk and looking at things because, because things, are, things are so homogeneous. And of course, people don't walk. If people don't walk, then you're not going to find friends. Um, I took my, this was of course in February, I took my family, we were in Chicago and we were staying with family and we went for a walk uh, with, with my family just in the suburb and two people stopped and said, are we okay? I said, no, we're going for a walk. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> so we kept walking and somebody else stopped and said, you know, you're okay, do you need a lift somewhere? I said, we're just going for a walk. Okay. We've come from England. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy people walking in the suburb. And, but this is something for us is very natural. You know, we always, this is something you do in, in England. Everybody goes for a walk. Yeah. This set of um, relationships between um, urbanism, urban environments, uh, and, uh, and obesity has been well studied, especially in Seattle, uh, by Adam Dronofsky. Um, Dronofsky came over to, to, to Oxford to give a series of lectures when our obesity unit started, and he's done systematically the best work on inequality and obesity in the United States. And he's very unpopular um, at the governmental level uh, because he's saying things that are, are very difficult you shouldn't really say in the United States because you can't talk about economic inequality in the United States politically, but he does. And uh, he's worked, done some great work in Seattle. And um, the importance of what he has called the Walmart corridor, these places where you have shopping malls, and this is the major way in which you do your shopping. Okay, you have some of this in, in Italy on the edges of cities, of course, but it's still not the dominant way. 
but you know, in places in the United States, you would go there for entertainment. So on a Saturday afternoon, you would go there. So what uh, Dronofsky found, he's done a lot of obesity geography in the US. There's, there's Dronofsky at our unit in Oxford. And he's looked at the relationships between obesity and poverty, first of all. So the red is the place which has the highest levels of those. This is Seattle, OK? Bill Gates lives here, King County. Um, actually, there's no, ba no data on this area at all, uh, because Gates and all the people who live around him um, don't respond to, uh, to, to survey data. They don't, they, they, they don't offer their own data. So in terms of inequality and uh, these, these social factors and health, all you know is that the real situation is probably more extreme because you don't have the data on the people who are, who are at, the, uh, at the most extremely high levels of, of, of wealth. So here, of course, fewest obesity. There's no poverty here. Okay, so um, central, uh, 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 central Seattle is down, is down here, richer, poorer. And down here, he emphasizes this as the Walmart corridor. This down here is all freeways, malls, shopping malls, and where obesity and poverty concentrate. Um, it's also the place in this chart, you can't see it so well, it's the same map, where there's the greatest density of fast food outlets. So more KFC, more McDonald's, and so on, concentrated in these same places, in these shopping malls, in exactly these same places. The grocery stores are the little shops that sell good food, because Seattle's full of good food, you can find it, but it's all in the wealthy places. So you can live very well in Seattle, or you can live very badly in Seattle, as in, as in Milano, I'm sure. So this, this, this geography is very, very interesting. Um, how do you reconcile this and how do you act on this? That you have complexity of obesity, you've got uh, counterintuitive ideas about obesity and, and urbanism, and one provocative way of thinking about uh, how to engage with obesity, given that it's a complex problem, is, I've called it, engaging with ignorance. Politically, problems can be solved by not solving them. The more unsolvable a problem is, the higher is its reproductive value. The more unsolvable a problem is, the higher it goes in the political priority. So this sabotages the hope we can force ecological problems into being organizational tasks and make sure that they'll be dealt with in an expert manner. That is, if something is complex, you can't reduce it to a straight line problem that you can then use organizations, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, and this will be the outcome. It's not a linear chain. It's a, it's a complex web. By working with a complex web, you can't deal with them in the usual way that government deals with things. So it, it forces it to develop new thinking. So mobilizing complexity, mobilizing um, ignorance in this context is something that say, look, if something's complex, we have to think about it in different ways. This is a situation with climate change, for example. The complexity of climate change means there has to be new thinking about it. And it's not happening in the United States, but it sure as anything is happening in Denmark, it's happening in Sweden, it's happening in, in uh, to, some, to a large extent, also the United Kingdom. After there was a, an economic report called the Stern Report that said this is going to cost billions of euros if you don't take some mitigating practices now. So complexity demands new solutions because it becomes politically untractable.
at some stage um, this is this is uh, uh, this is the case. So proceeding, Emilia Sanabria has written that in the problem of non-knowledge, uncertainty, complexity, and ignorance in the French obesity epidemic, that proceeding from an ecology of ignorance would lead to an organizational theory that is better able to recognize that complex problems cannot be broken down into quantifiable objectives or turned into strategic interventions with quantified regimes of efficacy. That is, again, you can't just break this down into simple work packages and work like that because every single work package will have an interactive component to it. That the usual political strategies can work for simple things and they, they work for, for some of simpler things like perhaps food supply, water supply, transportation, and so on. But these have become complex themselves, and these different complexities interact with each other. And so each of these cannot be considered as being a simple operation like it could be even 20 years ago. The challenge is how to engage with using the same methods of complexity science in policy. That's the challenge build the model and then see what the what the implications of that intervention will be because it won't solve the intervention won't work but it'll tell you what will change it will tell you what other things will change the challenge is how to turn this into a big data uh, network solution because there's a lot of data huge amounts of data collected on a daily basis um, which can be which economists are using but they, in fact, simplified their data. But you know, in the UK, for example, you have the the, the Big Data Institute, which is part of which is which is which which speaks to the government to work out ways of using using big data. The first places where big data are being seriously used are is, is in security. So in in relation to national security, this is the place. So we're scanning all our emails and and looking at our transactions and looking where we are on our, on our mobile phones because they know where everybody is on the basis of the GPS signal that's coming from it. And so they can they can harness that data with that big data. You say first of all, let's say let's find the terrorist, okay? And then you work backwards and you use a network model to identify the tracking patterns that eventually lead to, to the person you want, which happens very effectively. It is a big data problem, big data analysis problem, because increasingly there is data available, uh, but it's better than having a linear solution to a problem that is nonlinear. You still have to work at it. So, um, and as things are seen to be complex, it should push governments to thinking in, in, in complexity terms. The, the place in government I see where the best work is happening is actually in relation to e economics. So behavioral economists are using national data to examine the effects of different kinds of economic interventions. And, uh, and, and there again, they have, to make, you know, they have to make some assumptions. What is interesting if we, make, if we apply this kind of taxation? You know what are the different kinds of circularities that will happen in terms of in terms of this taxation? So, um, yeah, I'm not pretending that this is this is something we can we can resolve, but it's something that uh, is a challenge for the future. That this field has to move into into the into the big data uh, field to to start to be understandable. Okay, so just to take some approaches which I again developed in the book. 
um, about how to mobilize ignorance. I developed um, a rationalities framework and then developed the idea of polyrationality, which is already existing in urban planning and is uh, existing in terms of environmental management, especially in Germany, um, to see, well, what can, what can we do about uh, uh, thinking about uh, obesity? So very simply to think about rationalities. The most common rationality in the world at the moment is that of capitalism. And yet, we res res you know, we economists can reduce everything to economic rationality. Most economists, not all of them, the very intelligent ones, um, know that it's a much it's much more complex than that, of course. Uh, but you know, this 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 cartoon shows what happens with rational choice. So in the stock market, you can say, I've got a stock that can really excel. That means do well, really excel, excel. Ooh, sell, 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 sell. Okay. Just by listening to the words, you, you suddenly create a cascade of, uh, of, of behavior, of economic behavior. And then everybody's saying, sell, 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 sell. This is madness. I can't take any more. Goodbye, goodbye, bye, 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 bye. Okay, so this is, uh, um, I mean, some anthropologists have looked at the, uh, um, the rationality of the marketplace and have looked at stock market behavior because it isn't rational. Um, it involves many other kinds of, uh, of rationality, not just the economic one. And the economic rationality <coughs> does not give us the answer to, to, to everything. Um, I'm not a, not a philosopher, but you know, if you have any trouble, the best everyday philosopher to go for is Immanuel Kant, um, who lived in Konigsberg. Um, who very famously said, science is organized knowledge, wisdom is organized life. And so to take, go back from thinking about economic rationality as governing all of the world, are there other ways in which we can frame different problems? I've taken obesity, but there may be other problems. So this theoretical rationality, what is rational to believe? Now, that depends where you are and depends at what time in history. So if we were in Ravenna um, 1,500 years ago, rational to believe, it would be rational to believe in, in Christ and God and damnation, and it would be rational to believe um, that the heavens and the earth were controlled by rational religious forces. So Kant talked about uh, uh, among many things, talked about theoretical rationality and practical rationality. And in everyday life, um, how we play out everyday life is the relationships between theoretical and practical rationality, what we believe and what we do. And sometimes we have contradictions that something may be economically rational, but also maybe substantively rational in a different, in a, in a different way, that it contradicts our belief system, for example. You know, we don't all operate directly with economic rationality. So applying rationality, Kantian rationality, to obesity. So theoretical rationality, what types of evidence are rational to believe? Okay. And this is not straightforward because we've had um, critical fat scholars and fat activists come and talk in my unit in Oxford. One of the most famous ones has come and talked in my, talked in my unit. The rationality that underpins behavior in uh, critical fat activism is very different to, to uh, the rationality that underpins the state. The belief system is very different. 
but it's important to understand it. So this is why we, we, we in, engage everybody who can talk about these issues. So what kind of evidence is rational to believe? Biological, medical, economic, historical, sociological, anthropological, each of them will have a different rationality. So you decide which discipline you're in, and this will help steer how you think about this issue of body fatness and how this changes. Um, practical rationality plays out in what kinds of interventions are rational to do. What types of behavior are rational in relation to food? What kinds of behavior are rational in relation to the body, in relation to physical activity? And these practical rationalities, we make these decisions all the time. Every time we decide to eat something, we're making a decision of practical rationality. We make a decision. We may be hungry. Okay, that's easy. You know, we believe the biological evidence that hunger is a real material thing and therefore we eat because we're hungry. But what happens when we've eaten enough and somebody's saying, do you want dessert? Okay, well, I'm not hungry, but I like dessert. It tastes good. Um, and I'm with friends. My friend is having a dessert, so I'll have a dessert. Or if we're very intelligent, we have one dessert before, between four people, which, uh, which, which we can all have a little bit of, for example. So we have decisions of practical rationality. Now, theoretical and practical rationality interacts especially at the level of obesity policy because what evidence is rational for a politician is not the same as the evidence that is rational for a biologist. So you can argue very strongly that the biological case is very strong, but a politician will say, it really doesn't speak to me. It doesn't fit my idea of rationality. So you have this disconnection. I, I developed this idea further, perhaps in a different way, yeah. and we are um, working with a philosopher, practical philosopher, wow. Julian Savalescu yeah. at the University of yeah. Oxford, who's taken on obesity as, a, as part of his objects, one of his objects of research. So I completely agree with you um, that there are, they, they operate from many different rationalities. And I think the, the work so far has only taken us so far that we can see the disconnections between these different rationalities. And ultimately, yes, it has to reduce to, <coughs> to, to uh, ethics and philosophy. Um, there is also a philosopher at Copenhagen University. I'm affiliate professor at Copenhagen University as, as well, who is interested in, in, in these, these same issues. But there's a lot of work that needs to be done to be able to turn this practical philosophy into something that can be practiced. For example, but if you could turn if you could turn some of this into a practical philosophy that politicians can understand very simply, then this is doing very good work. If we can do that, uh, but again, that's a, that's another another challenge for the for the future. But I, I agree with you completely that uh, that these are these are major forces that we need to need to think about. If I may, I'll I'll continue, and. Uh, um, add Max Weber to, to the problem. Um, because a more complete approach engaging with, uh, with, uh, with, with rationality, <coughs> um, Weber gives us more instruments because he engages with the modern world. And he engages with uh, <coughs> the rationalities of bureaucracies, for example, and the substantive rationalities of religion, for example. You might say, um, you know, you would not kill somebody for their religion, except if you have a substantive rationality that is about religion. You say, well, you know, you know, why did Jesus Christ get killed, for example? 
to form a new religion. Different rationalities were operating at an earlier time that were well thought out, as you say, um, uh, but, uh, but can be framed in different ways. With respect to the production of obesity, I've simply related rationalities to the structures that use them. Okay? So the structures, as I've organized them, are governments, corporations, science, non-governmental organization, everyday people. Economic rationality cuts through all of them. So this is why it's a dominant rationality, because everything can be reduced to money at the moment. But you know, not everything. You can, can connect, you can communicate through money, but you can't, but you miss at something in every single stage. The only, uh, the only place where you have a, a fairly sort of total um, explanation is economic rationality and corporations, because their major business is to make money. That's the, uh, but governments, well, <laughs> governments are there to control money, but they have a bigger obligation to citizenship. Um, science, of course, is uh, involved in economic rationality because everybody's seeking funding. People need jobs and you need to be able to employ people. Non-governmental organizations as well. Um, everyday people earn incomes and they have to decide how they spend their money. But of course, you know, this is not how everyday life really is. There are other rationalities that really don't play so, so, so tightly with everything else. So emotion, culture, are things that don't really operate in governments, corporations, and in science to the same extent that they operate with non-governmental organizations that have their particular opinions and with everyday people who, you know, are operating in a different way to, in a different way to governments. So this is the slide that pulls together the different rationalities and these different organizations, which shows the level of disconnection. I focused on obesity, <coughs> but you could use this rationality framework to think about any other kind of big problem. You really could. You could do the same thing for, for, for thinking about climate change. Why is the discourse about climate change broken? Why do we have so much good knowledge that climate change is happening, and yet nothing is being done? Why do we have so much good knowledge about the production of obesity and yet we can't stop the problem? I believe that one of the reasons is that we have a big disconnect between the rationalities that governments practice, corporations practice, science, non-governmental organizations, and people practice. So I've spread them out in a way that we can, we can separate them and, and, and understand them a little bit. We think about people and government. There are rationalities that people have, evolutionary rationalities, for wanting to eat, for distinction, capital, in relation to inequality, family, emotion, religion, cultural food choice, sentiment, affect, that governments really aren't interested in. And yet, for people, this is what's important. So we have a big disconnection. So if the government says you should eat less food or you should be more physical active to individual people, there is no surprise that these policies don't work. And most governments have been promoting policies of individual responsibility for obesity. But the message doesn't travel because it's not interesting. In relation to everyday life that has to be negotiated through food, through how you behave, 
the government cannot penetrate into this into this area because people are operating by by some different rationalities in addition to government. They expect that economic decisions will govern everything. Well, to some extent, yes, but not totally. Uh, every government has its own has its own culture. Every country has its own history, and and uh, the right and wrong way of thing of doing things yeah. will, will will vary. And and the science. Uh, doesn't penetrate it because these are, you know, norms that have been established over over long periods of time. Institutional feeding should change in the UK very, very dramatically, and when they try, it's always rejected. And this is this is also a, a, an interesting failure. So, so again, I you know com completely agree with you. So, I'm going to talk about an idea that uh, came to me from uh, somebody who was. Uh, um, a doctoral student at Oxford, but also a master planner, and uh, she was uh, one of the master planners for the China for the Beijing Olympics, and she talked about polyrationality. I thought, what can I do with this idea of polyrationality? Polyrationality is when you pull together these different rationalities, and it's happening in some places. So I'll give you the example of Oxford. Um, I live outside of Oxford, way over here. And in the winter of 2014, this is how it looked. Yeah, covered in water. This was how, these are fields, okay? They were holding back the water from, from, from Oxford, but then it broke. And then around here, this street completely flooded. They built these houses at a time when they think this is, these are workers' houses, and uh, it doesn't matter. They won't last for very long. Now these are being bought up by wealthier people gentrifying, this is close to the railway station, people catch the train to go to London, so people are spending more money, it's becoming more more affluent. These fancy supermarkets are, are going there as well, and now they're saying we don't want flooding. Okay, How do you stop nature? So the, the idea of the book really came that obesity is like this flood. That this flood, um, really, how do you regulate it? No one person can do it. One way they do it is, again, using expert systems. They know how much water is coming down, is regulated, they hold it back up here, hold it back there, hold it back there. They regulate the flow 50 kilometers before it comes to Oxford. In Paris, they do the same with the Seine, the River Seine, because this floods. They hold the river back. Of course, in Paris, everybody in France, everybody complains that you know they're flooding our fields to save the rich Parisians. This is the the you know the, why should we be helping the people in Paris? In Oxford, they're holding the water back to stop all this flooding. And most of Oxford could actually be underwater at least once a year now. So climate change is contributing to this. So thinking about polyrationality, that you can apply the knowledge you have about different systems to be able to regulate um, a, a complex system. So this is floodplain management. This is where the water is flooding. So in Germany, Hartmann has talked about complex social process that involves floodplain management, different stakeholders, everyone has a different rationality. And so you have to work out how to work with this without leading to a, a, a technological lock-in. That means that everybody disagrees and nothing happens. Everybody has a different rationality, different organizations, nothing happens because you can't agree. So how to develop a consensus around the things you can agree that allows different rationalities to frame the patterns of activity in the floodplain. So everybody has something 
but not everything. Now, of course, this is, a, this is very much a German idea. And this is how river management in, 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 in some parts of Germany is happening. They say, well, who owns the houses? Where are the schools? Where are the roads? Where are the trains? What are the distribution systems? What is the hydrological problem with this river? Um, where, does it, where is it likely to flood? Bringing all of these things together to, to solve a, a practical problem that you can't really solve because nature will carry on. That's one thing polynationality and land use also, this is increasingly being brought into thinking about smart cities. Okay. Copenhagen is a beautiful city which is very old and traditional, not so old because it burnt down many times, but, but uh, beautiful, old, hyper-modern, hyper-intelligent. So, for example, when they remade one of the parks, they put a slope in with a barrier down one end. So when there's this flooding, there's a lot of rainfall which comes every year, it comes into this park, builds up here, they release it slowly so it doesn't inundate the city. All the modern architecture has some environmental component to it to make it you know, more intelligent and responsive ecologically. So to me, Copenhagen is a beautiful example. Of course they have the problems. Everyone has their problem. But, but polyrationality in planning uh, land use, you know, there are many different kinds of rationalities. Where people want to live together, kinship, collaborative, where people are working together, where corporations operate, uh, where you know, business people are making opportunities happen very quickly and trying to make a profit, all of these things are potentially in conflict but need to be brought together. And ultimately, this is starting to happen in the, the healthy cities discourse, which is where I want to take the, the, uh, the next stage of the conversation. In Paris, they're expanding the urban infrastructure. There's a whole new section. Okay, so a, the center of Paris here, all of this is happening outside of Paris. They've got a super ring road happening outside Paris, expanding dramatically into this new meta you know, mega urban conurbation. But what is interesting is that the planners know about climate change, and the planners know about health, they're trained, and they're thinking about how to build in, um, you know, more intelligent structures, not just expanding what we already know, but actually building with a, with a vision to the future. So this is um, the Grand Paris Express, which is um, a development that they, imagine to be a, a city for the future which is sustainable, solidarity-based, of course very French. French think about solidarity. So the cultural tropes in building this smart city are about things that are particular to, to the French. In Italy, you build smart cities in a, in a different way. Torino, for example, is also very much engaged in the, the smart cities discourse, and they're extending the idea of smart cities way into the, into the, into the rural areas. They're saying all of this can be smart. And that is bringing in regionality into the smart cities discourse in, in, uh, in Italy. So how do you, how do you change um, the planning? When you're building something new, you can imagine into the future. This is, I think this is something that is potentially very beautiful if done properly. The planners, as always, and the public servants, as always, are intelligent people and want the best. But in thinking about... Uh, obesogenic environments that is trying to avoid obesity, um, obesogenic environments are not homogeneous and nor is the research. We did some work using artificial intelligence to map 
uh, the discourses in uh, obesogenic environments. We found that actually even the scientists who are working on obesity and environment fall into five different categories. Even the scientists are not talking to each other. So we took, you know, did a semantic analysis using, uh, using artificial intelligence, and we found that food environment, institutional environment, built environment, family environment, bodily, as in medical environment, all fall into, uh, have different patterns of, uh, of discourse. This was with um, techno-anthropologists in Copenhagen who are mostly artificial intelligence people, which is a, a, a really nice uh, interdisciplinary grouping. Okay, so when we took this different uh, polyrationality approach to obesogenic environments, institutional, built, food, bodily, family environments have different Kantian and Weberian rationalities, have different obesity objects, they focus on different aspects of behavior, <clears throat> they have different organizational framing. So institutional is focused towards government, the built environment towards urban planning, food towards corporations, bodily environments, bioscience, family environments towards people. And again, this is the place these rationalities do not connect. So the discourses around obesity and environment have many disconnects because they're using different rationalities. Okay, I'm creating too many problems. I'm really sorry about this. <coughs> this goes against a more traditional model, ecological model of physical activity. This is Bauman, 2012, who looked at uh, how individuals, environmental policy, and global factors affect physical activity from the biological and physiological, psychological, uh, to the social, to the environmental, and so on, in a kind of nested, um, uh, uh, nested way, from the individual all the way to the whole planet, and policy responses that go from the individual to the structural. And there are problems with this kind of this kind of thinking, but actually we should be moving towards a more networked complexity model of physical activity rather than these layered models, because these layered models make certain kinds of assumptions. The biggest problem is that the evidence that is easiest to get is at the level of the individual. You know a lot about people, because you can ask people, you can watch people, you can measure people. Um, but the structural evidence at the national and the global level is the most difficult to accumulate, and yet this is the place where the interventions really should happen. So if these urban planners are building for the future with an imagination for healthy cities into the future, the evidence for knowing how you should build into the future is the least good, whereas we know an awful lot about individuals. And so policy responses at the individual level very common. You said, yes, you should do more physical activity. Yes, you should cycle for 30 minutes every day. Yes, you should walk for half an hour every day. Lots of that kind of advice. Okay, fine. But make me a place where I want to walk. Make me a place where I want to cycle. That is more difficult because the evidence is really, you know, not so good. But so I want to now move to, to social distinction and capital, another aspect of physical activity, biocultural factors. And I can, I can run very quickly uh, with this one and uh, uh, get, through, uh, uh, get through, I think, quite a lot of material. So I'm going to now focus on uh, the individual and society in relation to Bourdieu's formations, of, Bourdieu's formations of, of, of capital. So physical activity from a biocultural perspective um, 
can be looked at from a number of different uh, perspectives, from an ev giving an evolutionary advantage. If you're fit and, and fit, then, uh, uh, then you might have a, an evolutionary advantage. Um, it's a military advantage to have people who are physically fit, usually, not always. Now, most warfare is done by using games um, and, and computers. This is changing. Um, uh, it's important in economic production, even if people are not physically fit, you want them to be mentally fit and the two are related. Um, it's important in sport, of course. Uh, but I'm going to focus on aesthetic capital of people, of the built environment, and then I'm going to talk about, about capital formation. So I'm going to start off by, by talking about the, the aesthetics of people. I'm sorry for the, the French figures. These are Yves Klein, who's a, a famous uh, uh, modern French artist. And, uh, and a French philosopher to go, to, to go with the, the, the French artist, of course, uh, uh, Pierre Bourdieu. And I'm sorry for linking my name with Bourdieu. Um, he's very much a hero. And uh, <laughs> uh, also Bruno Latour. You know, Bruno Latour blessed my obesity unit, which is very nice. He actually gave a, you know, a secular blessing to my, to my grouping when he, came, when he came to Oxford. So we had a cup of tea, and uh, yeah, he said, "I don't know what I can do, but you know, I will bless it." Just but very, very, uh, very Latour-like. He's very, very famous uh, uh, sociologist who worked on laboratory life, uh, especially among many, many other things, um, and uh, problems of constructivism. But okay, we know about economic capital. Money can buy many things. Social capital, knowing people, is helpful because. You know, the more socially connected you are, then you can solve problems through other people. We know about cultural capital, that uh, if you can buy your Rembrandt, then you carry cultural capital. If you can't buy a Rembrandt, then maybe a Warhol. If you can't buy a Warhol, then maybe you can distinguish yourself through the objects that you have. So that's objectified cultural capital. Um, institutional cult cultural capital, if you go to the University of Bologna, you can forever say I have a degree from the University of Bologna, and this is um, with no disrespect to everybody else with degrees from other universities, but uh, you can say this is, I, I carry this forever with my life, uh, for, for my life. Uh, Americans who come to the University of Oxford forever put, you know, University of Oxford on their cards, and they say, look, uh, this is part of my, my, my institutional capital, my education. It's not just the education I got. I went to a prestigious place. This is, this is a form of capital. And then, of course, embodied capital, which is, which is increasingly uh, important, that in this age, post-origins of Facebook age, we have to present ourselves well. You know, you have to have a nice face, you have to smile on your, on your website, you have to look friendly, you have to look nice, all these sorts of things. So embodied capital is something that has become much more important, and I'm going to talk about this in relation to, to physical activity. So embodiment as capital. The idea of aesthetic capital is uh, relatively recent. It's only about five years old, really. Um, to, 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 to give the ex uh, 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 illustration of this example, there's George Clooney, there's Madonna, both of them looking nice, dressed for something important, one hopes. And, uh, and there you have Clooney, he's, he's running in the park, and there's Madonna coming straight out of the gym. They're doing body work um, to acquire embodied capital, because part of their, their, their capital, part of what they do, is simply having the right kind of body. Okay? That's their job. That's part of a big important part of their job. It's also important, you know, for you know when uh, uh, Barack Obama was uh, was elected president, 
the first thing he did after he, uh, um, uh, he, he knew the results was go to the gym. And people said, well, why he should be organizing the government and all the rest of it. No, actually, he went to the gym because this was the most important thing. He could demonstrate that he's a fit young president by you know, doing the right things. And Obama, during his administration, every day would stop to play basketball during the day. So this was a, the idea of embodied capital. It's not just having the, the cultural capital of being president, but also having the embodied capital of somebody who is fit to be president. Aesthetic capital isn't just for Clooney, Obama, and Madonna. It's also for everybody. Um, for example, anybody who is engaged in reducing their body size. Here's a magazine from the UK called Slimming World lots of things about how to lose weight and look good, how to be self-presentational. Aesthetic capital does <coughs> body work for weight loss. And body work is when you're actually doing something to improve the shape of your body. Um, and it's a form of labor because um, you're not just doing it for health. And I think this is where public health gets a lot, lot wrong. Uh, people don't do these things for health. They do these things for, for aesthetic capital. In, in large part, to look good. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think to promote you know, physical activity for health is missing the point. People will do the work to improve, improve how they look, for good reasons. Because to, to be mobile in everyday life, you have to have um, uh, uh, the right kind of body to be doing this. So citizenship elaborate in late modern society more individuals are forced to negotiate lifestyle choices among many options we can do many different different things and according to to Nicholas Rose to be an autonomous free individual you have to learn new techniques for understanding and practicing them on yourself that you kind of embody the state through knowing what you should do. So if we know that we need to be more physically active then, um, and the state sell, says this, well, we have to understand this and internalize this knowledge. And of course, there's this rationalities disconnect in, there, in this, and we practice them for ourselves. This disconnect, we're less likely to listen to government in relation to physical activity <laughs> than if some health guru or celebrity says we should do this, because the celebrity is operating in the realm of substantive rationality rather than in the realm of, of of practical rationality of government. So that's why we listen to celebrities, but don't listen to the government. So we have the idea of the enterprising self. We're pushed to live as making a project of ourselves. We're, lived to, we're pushed to work on their emotional world, domestic world, um, the relationships with employment, um, techniques of sexual pressure to develop a style of living that will maximize the worth of existence to ourselves. All of us has a project. Everybody who has a Facebook page is making a project of themselves because they have to declare what they want to the world, and it's usually a very positive thing, and this is helping to construct yourself in a world where there are many possible selves that are possible. You make, can be many different kinds of people, and you have to make decisions about the kind of person you're going to be, and this enterprising self also involves the building of emotional capital. So, and it's, sorry, aesthetic capital. So the building of, uh, of, uh, of aesthetic capital, this growth of self-presentation through selfies. Um, 
I've put, I've contrasted this with pictures of, of, of uh, Canaletto in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Firenze and in London, where people are also presenting themselves, but in very different ways. Whenever you go out on the streets, you're presenting yourself. And people are looking, you know, people are judging. So selfies are the first thing that, uh, that, uh, I I I that uh, one thing that drives self-presentation. Self-presentation, aesthetic capital in Facebook page. You know, this guy up there, he's decided how he's going to look for Facebook because he thinks this is the best kind of aesthetic capital he can develop for himself. Two-Bit Matthews um, seems to have a good following. Katniss Everdeen so seems to have a good following as well. And so they decide how you present yourself in these images with the images that you, you display. And you can make a decision about somebody, whether you want to be their Facebook friend, by looking at their page and, and making all these decisions. That, you know, that is self-evident. But the point is that there's an awful lot of aesthetic capital work going on to, in terms of self-presentation. This is what has changed much of the world in the last, you know, since 2004, in the last 15 years. Of course, there's a whole new generation that just operates within this domain. Um, Aesthetic labor. Um, this is time you spend to make yourself look good, and women spend more time in aesthetic labor than men do. Um, physical beauty norms, makeup, and so on, a huge industry around aesthetic labor to have developed the aesthetic capital because people look at your face, you're judged very quickly, immediately. If you don't know somebody, people judge you in, in a fraction of a second. So the idea of aesthetic capital, what's the point? I'll just draw your attention to, 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 to the writing that, that, is, that is in red. Aesthetic capital is largely produced through aesthetic labor. We do work. We might do physical activity for the point of aesthetics. We want to build the right muscles, or we want to build a thin mod body, or whatever it might be. We do aesthetic labor. Body work requires physical activity and other forms of capital in the social domain. So beauty and good looks come with benefits, including sexual attractiveness and especially attribu attributions of moral goodness and economic success. That is, if somebody looks good, you think, well, you know, they're probably morally good as well. You could be badly mistaken, of course. Uh, but there's an assumption that goes with how somebody looks and the values that you present on them. So the value of, of developing aesthetic capital is that people will look at you and make assumptions about your value in your other domains of capital. And this is growing as, a, as an important uh, importance as a form of capital in a post-Bourdieuan world. Um, so the halo effect, the assumption that people with visible desirable traits also have other positive qu uh, qualities. So aesthetic capital was initially for celebrities, and of course they practice it, but it's also important for politicians. Look at Berlusconi. Why does he need plastic surgery when he's got so much money? It's not just vanity, he's developed maintaining aesthetic capital. You know, he's not stupid. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's doing a very, very late modern practice which is, which is concentrating on aesthetic capital. So important for politicians, for leaders, Everyday people, everybody's engaged in this aesthetic capital development. So physical activity um, formed by individuals um, simply for the sake of health, but more importantly, in negotiating everyday life with the aesthetic capital that we generate. Everybody thinks about what they're going to wear. They wash, they make sure they look nice, because in everyday life, these judgments are happening all the time.
Okay, so rethinking these forms of capital that I showed earlier, I would put aesthetic capital in there as well as a major form of cultural capital that has emerged and is growing in the present in the present day world. So physical activity. I'm going to spend the last few minutes now to talk about the built environment and the aesthetics of the built environment because that's important. The built environment is itself complex. Human settlements, the house and home, but also has many different components to it. Industry, commerce, trade, residence, government, leisure, symbolism, aesthetics, all of these are important in the, in the physical environment. In terms of aesthetics, um, perceived aesthetics are important in relation to walking, in relation to walking for exercise. Cycling is usually performed better in neighborhoods where aesthetics are positively perceived, where people are active, where things are nicer. Okay? And that's not just somebody saying it. There's good evidence to, to, to document this. Where you have somewhere to walk to, where you have something nice to look at, other people, you'll do it, and other people will do it. So you'll bump into somebody else, and you'll have a conversation. You'll say hello. You say you're looking well. You all these nice things that that make 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 life good. So urban form and aesthetics really are important and go together. So in the context of late modernity, where you separate out functions and make life very functional, you're destroying the aesthetics of wanting to be physically active. Because if suburbia all looks the same. What are you looking at? What are you, you know, what are you seeking? And that's, you know, that's a, another aspect. So, Oxford, it's a no-brainer. Walking and cycling in Oxford, it's a beautiful place. Not usually in gowns and hoods, just sometimes. Um, and not usually on a monocycle, but you can if you want. However, you, plenty of place for eccentricity and expression in Oxford. It's very nice. Everything is tolerated. It's a, almost a hippie place sometimes, as well as being very traditional. It's also a garden city, okay? So this is from the air. This is the center of Oxford. There's so much green space in Oxford. There are plenty of beautiful places to go. You just want to be outdoors. You want to be walking and you want to be looking at things and bumping into, you know, there's quite a lot of business I do in Oxford just walking. I bump into somebody, we have a brief conversation, you bump into somebody else, a small conversation. A lot of politics happens just in this context of walking from one place to another. Compare this to downtown Detroit. was in the past. Detroit is renovating quickly, but the built environment can affect the mental state. It can make people feel um, unhappy. Perception of urban disorder um, can be seen as a signal of breakdown in local social order, so people don't want to go there. They're places people feel unhappy. So all of these things, you know, you can work in a very positive way or things can often operate in a negative way. So these things are, are related. So going on, how should you not build a city? This is Chicago, which looks nice, but if you've be been there at the wrong time of year, these wind tunnels are horrible. You know, you, you can't stop and have a conversation. You know, you would not go for a walk in downtown Chicago when, you know, you build these tall buildings and the wind is just blowing down the street and everything is, uh, you know, this was early modernism that was, sorry, uh, uh, that was building these, these, these skyscrapers without thinking about how they should be built. Here's another mistake in London. Okay, this one is called the walkie-talkie. It's like a, like, like, like a telephone. Okay, when they planned it, it looks cool. But what it does is it concentrates the wind downwards. So, and it also concentrates heat. So 
it melted a part of a car because it concentrated heat downwards but soon after it was built. So it heats the pavements, so it's, it's too hot to walk. It's, it's just the, te the, 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 the pavement becomes so, so incredibly hot. Nobody wanted to, do, to, to be down there at the bottom of that because this is pushing everything down. This is the kind of effect that you can see. When the wind is blowing, you get these wind tunnels. If you have this, this, this building bent like this and the light is coming down, it's concentrating down like a lens. Have to think in more complex ways about how you build the buildings, which good architects are doing, okay? Renzo Piano, of course, my hero. He's fantastic, an ecological uh, wonder with materials because he's thinking about building futures in an ecological way. So this is the Shard in London, okay? Renzo Piano. Um, and, uh, and this is the Torso building in, in Malmo in Sweden. So what's happening with this one? It looks okay, looks okay. Down there, there's no problem because the wind goes, it doesn't go down, it goes, goes sideways. With the shard, it's pushing upwards. Two words about uh, uh, a computer scientist called uh, Daniela Kirchia, who um, has uh, worked on how you might improve your use of an existing urban environment. So the easiest way to go from one place to another is economically rational but it doesn't necessarily give aesthetic returns that encourage people to be physically active. The built environment can be beautiful. The built environment can be ugly. What uh, Quachia and colleagues did was to look at London and other cities, Torino as well, I have to say, and Boston, and to identify what people find to be beautiful, what people find to be quiet, um, to give visual illustrations. They crowdsourced quiet, beauty, and happiness in many different ways. So it's a crowdsourcing task. You click on a question and another question, and you ask to say, what is beautiful about this? What is quiet about this? What is, you know, what is ugly about this? And so you know, with lots of different pictures, you have 3,000 participants uh, responding to five and a half million images of London and you just answer one question, you click on something, you say, yeah, that is, you know, oh, that is beautiful, oh, that is beautiful, um, you know, that is beautiful, that is beautiful, oh, that is ugly, that is ugly, you know, just like that. But, you know, five, five million responses to, to all of these questions. So beauty and ugly in this case. So you just go through this. I've done this myself, that you just you go through this process and then you go and do the same. Does this street look quiet? Does this street look noisy? Does this street, does this place look happy? Does this place look sad? So you can go and have a look at a map of London. You can find the saddest places, the happiest places. You can, you can do all of this. The quietest places, the loudest places. You can do that. It's all mapped. The relationships between beauty, quietness, and happiness with respect to moving around a city do not relate to the shortest way of going somewhere. Which is, not what we, which is what you would expect. But when you actually look at a walk in London, okay, a walk from Euston Square in the north here to Tate Modern, okay? To walk this according to his navigation, so he turned this into a navigation tool, which is an app, you can use the app, 48 minutes to walk the shortest way, quickest way. If you want to have a beautiful walk, it just takes four minutes longer a beautiful walk, four minutes longer. If you want to have a quiet walk, it takes seven minutes longer. 
If you want to have a happy walk, it just takes five minutes longer. So if you have that five minutes more, you can be happy when you get to your location. If you have four minutes more, you can have a beautiful walk. You can, you know, on the basis of what this crowdsourcing uh, production did. Physical activity as an expert system negotiated with technologies. We use all kinds of technologies in physical activity. First of all, shoes, what we put on our feet. Um, we have a, a watch. We relate time to space. We use maps. We use bicycles. We have technologies, many different technologies for, for moving around urban landscapes. Smartness in the form of the phone is also one of these major instruments now used to, to, to map physical activity. One of the problems is that we have a smartphone, smart cities, but these two do not connect at the moment. We still have the discourses of smart objects and smart cities. They're both engaged in the Internet of Things, but they're separate as, 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 dis, dis, as discrete objects. So using smart technologies, everybody's doing that. Um, using smart cycles. This is, I don't know how it is here, but smart cycles, you, you just, you just, you know, yeah, you, you just, you know, tap on it, you've, you know, you've got the app, you, you, it will unlock when you, when you, when you, when you go to the symbol and then you find the bike anywhere. So this is, this is Oxford, um, dockless uh, cycle schemes, built environments. So this is Copenhagen where smartness is, is built into the building in terms of ecology, in terms of health, in terms of aesthetics. So this is the building I work in in, in, in Copenhagen. So this is basically this is a humanities department. Okay, an anthropologist trained in biochemistry who is now in a humanities department. That's cool, that's okay. But there's many things that make this a very beautiful place to work because everything is around being able to move, lots of circulation. These desk spaces, you can hot desk around here, beautiful vegan cafe, uh, because they've said, well, look, let's just take meat out of this altogether. Let's just have a vegan cafe. And so this is, you know, Im immediately incorporates everybody. Um, many, many breakout spaces everywhere, quiet spaces, loud spaces. So you have the potential for, for a lot of interaction um, and, and very positive interaction. So aesthetics of people and aesthetics of the built environment. Built environments will continue to be built, but how should they be built? Performative architecture is a term that hasn't been engaged with very much uh, in public health, if at all. But here's one example of performative, performative art. That is, you take your own zebra crossing and you, you say, well, look, I've got to stop this traffic by putting out this symbol. And then when I've rolled out this symbol, I can cross the road. And of course, it confuses the cars and so on. So this was, uh, um, this was in 1993 in Castle. This is the, the but you know, during the, the, the big exhibition. Um, so this is a form of performativity. This idea of performativity in art started to be engaged, be engaged in architecture as well. So examples of performative architecture in London, the Shard building is just up there. This is the London County Council. This was a horrible place. Now, people genuinely want to be there. It's a nice place. In the summer, they have screens. It's, you know, it's, it's a place where people want to socialize. It's a place, place where people will walk to. Just down the way, you, you have uh, uh, Borough Market, for example. People can get their street food. Uh, it's, you know, you can go up the Shard and spend a lot of money in a very fancy restaurant, or you can go and buy street food in, in, in Borough Market. So it's, it's something that incorporates everybody. In Copenhagen, this is Israelsplatz, which was a horrible, desolate place, which is, again, 
you know, they've looked at the behavior of people and they've built something that will engage people in being there. It's kind of bringing back the urban into, into urban spaces. Canaletto. You know, Canaletto constructed his pictures from many different things. That actually his father was a, um, a, a, a painter for theatre scenes. And he took that with him in his later life. That all of this is performance. And that actually when you think about how people engage with the city, they engage in it performatively. You're going to meet something. You're going to meet somebody. You're going to do something. You're standing in a square and you're looking at what other people are doing. You're looking at, you know, the beauty of it as people are moving around. And, and this is, you know, this is, this is all urban performance. Building this into architecture so people want to engage in these performances is, 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 is already happening. Okay, so Copenhagen again, okay, with, uh, you know, the cycle bridge, the red cycle bridge, very famous. You can cycle across some of the busiest places in Copenhagen around some of these big buildings and you have a beautiful view as you cycle and commute across the city. So when you go to Copenhagen, because you must, go and hire a bicycle and cycle around the city because it's beautiful, genuinely beautiful. Smartness is built into some places on a regular basis like, like Copenhagen. Systematically, smartness is built into the environment. So smart city technologies will be different in different built environments. So how smart cities happen in Torino, Bologna, and so on, smaller places will be different according to their histories. But they, I believe, will function like pond ecologies, that each one is separate in its ecology. So understanding the local ecology is the fundamental thing to developing smartness, that there's not a, you know, a modern agenda of homogeneity, but of heterogeneity in, in function, because each place operates as a pond ecology. Do, do, do you, Copenhagen, the last thing I want to say is again Copenhagen, that since 1948 in Copenhagen, the city expansion plan developed something they call the finger plan, okay? So as they developed urbanism in Copenhagen, it follows the fingers. They're building another finger here now, yeah? That in between all of these, you can easily access rural spaces. You can be hyper-urban and rural at the same time. How clever is that? And what they build is cycle tracks now. They're building cycle tracks 20 kilometers from Copenhagen. So people can commute 20 kilometers on a bicycle. If you, yeah, if you take, and they've got one ring road, and they're building a second ring road around Copenhagen, cycle ring road, cycle ring road. You can travel a long distance on your bicycle. If you want to take the train, you put your bicycle on the train, you take the train. And everywhere, they say for every point of communication hub, transport hub in Copenhagen, there should be three ways of getting there. It's the most intelligent smart city on the planet at the moment because they're thinking very seriously for the future. The Copenhagen is expanding dramatically. Uh, they're thinking about health, they're thinking about avoiding obesity, and they're thinking about planning planning seriously, seriously for the future. Okay, I think I should just stop. Um, this is probably a good time to stop. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>